I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 30 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week is a talented, intelligent, and adventurous writer of music and words, Chris Stamey. He was in bands with Mitch Easter and Alex Chilton before forming the DBs and playing with the Golden Palominos, but he has spent most of his career creating a formidable body of work on his own. He also has written a memoir, A Spy in the House of Loud, The New York Songs and Stories. It's a terrific, illuminating read that covers his move from North Carolina to New York City and his growth as an artist. It's filled with detailed accounts of songwriting and colorful tales of time spent in clubs and studios as he absorbs many influences. It also immerses us in the transformative mid-70s CBGB's music scene of the Ramones, Blondie, and his favorites, television. Although Stamey previously had recorded music with Easter in their band, The Sneakers, I first got to know Stamey's work through the first two DB's albums, Stands for Decibels and Repercussion in the early 80s. He and Peter Holsapple were a classic band singer-songwriter duo, each perfectly counterbalancing the other. Holsapple's songs tended to be more direct. Stamey's, such as Cycles Per Second and Happenstance, were more likely to take corkscrew turns and veer into unexpected rhythmic and melodic territory. Though he also turned out beautiful, straightforward songs, such as From a Window to a Screen. Although the DBs began as Stamey's band, he didn't feel like he was doing his best, most expressive work in the group, and he left the other three to carry on without him. He later regrouped with Hull Sapple for three excellent duo albums, Mavericks, an angel. and Our Back Pages, the last of which revisited older songs in an acoustic setting. The four original DBs also delivered an energetic reunion album in 2012's Falling Off the Sky. But Stamey's DBs experience represents just the tip of a vast iceberg of creative work. His songwriting and arranging have grown in sophistication and skill over eight inspired solo albums and other projects. These include 1982's It's a Wonderful Life, 1987's It's All Right, with it should have been hit, Kara Lee. Lee, 1991's Fireworks, and after a 13-year break, 2004's Travels in the South. His most recent album, 2020's Music from the Songbook, A Brand New Shade of Blue, has a late night jazz feel. He currently is in the middle of an ambitious project in which he offers his own spin on the great American songbook. He sent me a file titled Marvelous Melodies Songbook, New Songs, Volume 3, that contains notated sheet music for 15 songs. Once on a summer's day, for example, is described as a reminiscence hauntingly a la Jobim. It runs at 80 beats a minute. Stamey has done much production work as well for bands including Pylon and Yola Tango, and he continues to work and think hard about making music. He spoke with me from his studio in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where he now lives. I asked him how important it is for a songwriter to know music theory. Stamey discusses this point as well as those lightning bolt moments when inspiration strikes and a song gets stashed in your head like a precious secret. He speaks about his work with Alex Chilton, whose behavior rarely conformed to his difficult dark reputation. He also talks about his release of Big Star founder Chris Bell's wonderful standalone single, I Am The Cosmos, and we cover Stamey's participation in the Big Star's third tribute concerts as well. Stamey addresses analog versus digital recording, not just the sound, but the smell, as each brand of reel-to-reel tape has its own distinct scent. He could teach a masterclass covering what he has learned about music and creativity, and he essentially does that here. Please enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Chris Stamey. Thank you uh, again for doing this. I appreciate it. Um, I've enjoyed your your songwriting for a long time, and uh, you know other work that you've done. And I also really enjoyed your book. And I actually want to start with 
I'm just going to read a really lovely quote from it, and then we'll go from there. Um, you're talking about that delicious feeling of having a song brewing. And you wrote, I might be surrounded by dozens in a subway or talking to a sales clerk in a bookstore or doing an interview uh, at the record label, but I was the only one who knew that simultaneously this music was being born. Drunk on the strange, subtle elixir, I would imagine I knew how it must feel to be a secret agent assigned to a mission in a foreign land as I maintain my facade of normal activity, all, all the while impatiently counting the minutes until I could return to a private place and, and transcribe or record this encrypted message in a bottle that had been fermenting, then formulate a way to float it out into the world. Um, well, I'm glad you like that. I like that bit, too. I. Um, <laughs> throughout my life, I've had a hard time walking the line between profound and cheesy, and uh, often I don't even know where that line falls. But um, I, I, that was actually me trying to be accurate, and and I've found that other songwriters uh, are familiar with that um, dual duality, um, and and actually I. Did get I codified it a little better, or I understood it a little better after reading uh, "Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain." The um, is it Betty Edwards? I think uh, I don't know if you know that book, but it, um, I don't, but I it, will. Well, I mean, I mean, you're probably familiar with the bicameral brain model: of left brain, right brain. It's you know in the pop press all the time, and um, but I think there's a lot to be said about that, and I think that. Um, if you can kind of lean into the right brain, time seems to move at a different pace or a more uh, unpredictable pace. And, and um, a lot of creating music is going back and forth between that, if you accept the bicameral model at all. But if you have no idea what I'm talking about here and you're listening to this podcast, I do recommend that book. Uh, it's about drawing on paper, but... Um, it's really helpful for songwriting. When you're writing songs or formulating songs or having them come to you or however you describe it, how much of it are you doing in your head as opposed to sitting on an instrument and you know working something out? Um, I think it's changed through the years. I think um, in the 70s and the 80s, it was a lot in my head. Um, I think there's a gestation time for me typically where... Um, you know, the the light looks a certain way, or um, I, it's hard to know what would trigger it, but I get an idea for a song, and that may be an idea that is uh, can be put into words or not. But usually it's like a couple of days later. And um, if I'm near a piano, I'll do it on piano or near a guitar. Um, or a lot of times I'll be driving, you know, and I'll just... Uh, voice memo's great. Um it would be, it would have been helpful for me to understand this process better, and I've tried to, you know, sneak up on it. And uh, but it's a little bit unpredictable. I think usually a song is brewing, and these days piano is where I go. I'm particularly interested in a um, kind of the Great American Songbook harmonic palette um, of beyond triads and. I don't know that well enough, so I kind of have to poke around at the piano to find those chords. Yeah, yeah. Well, in, in this passage that I read, like you talked about wanting, waiting patiently so you could get to a private space to uh, transcribe or record. And transcribe is implying that, like, that, that you sort of have this in your head that's actually music that's sort of written, but is written on your brain, and you need to transcribe that onto some sort of other medium like piece of paper or a screen or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get too highfalutin here. I, I I will typically be at an instrument, but a lot of times I'll have heard the, the basics of a progression um, beforehand. Um, let's see, I'm actually at the Horlitzer here, um, except it's making a lot of noise. The uh, like I've been learning how to use uh, half diminished chords or, or minor seven flat five chords more, which would be uh, and uh, but I saw so the other day I was thinking of a melody that well you can have that chord but put in the the regular five as well 
uh, which makes it kind of like a ninth chord, but um, so I, I came up with another melody. Um, mm-hmm, I don't know why. Da, da, da. So I had that much, kind of based on an interest in a chord I'm not that familiar with. That was in my head. That was in my head. But then the rest of it, I fleshed out on piano. Do your songs tend to start with something like that, like a progression as opposed to some phrase like, I don't really know or something like that? No, I I guess, you know, these days I've been trying to start with a a lyrical line because so many of the Tin Pan Alley writers or Cole Porter, you know, would start with, um, you know, Birds do it, bees do it, let's fall in love. You know, a little idea like that is a germ. But it's all, you know, however you hit the Petri dish. I mean, I, I think that there are really two paths to song to writing a song. One is inspiration, and that might be something in your life or something you're fascinated by that's not happening in your life. So it could be a confessional song. You know, you're revealing something, and those are often really powerful and then the other way to really get there is a deadline. You know, if you've got a, a I pitched an idea to do a, a, a kind of a holiday musical radio play. Um, was it in 2019? I'm not sure what year it was. And the radio, guy at the radio station here said, yeah, great, let's do it. And it was like October. And... Um, so that was a pretty big deadline, and I was able to write like five or six songs I still am quite proud of just because my nose was to the grindstone. I mean, are you open to songwriting all the time, or is it more like when I'm thinking of doing a project, that's when those gears start working? Well, you need a certain amount of uh, time of just going, ah, uh, you know, you, I mean, if you're if you're really busy, you don't have the time in the day. I, I write in the morning, um, generally, and you can carve out a little more time in the morning if you need to get up at uh, five instead of seven. You can you can find that time, and I, I find that very valuable. But um, I don't know. Um, when I've, when I, There were years when I was producing a lot of people, um, and during that time, I didn't write many songs. Um these days, I'm I'm trying to write. Um, well, I shouldn't actually say this because it's so, so ridiculous, Mark. But um, it, it's not. You know, it's like someone might get the idea to paint the Notre Dame every day of the year, and why I don't know. I'm kind of doing something like that. I'm trying to write my own Great American Songbook in my own muddled fashion. So every year I've been doing these songbook collections of, um, and, and I don't know how long I'll keep it going, but that that's a like a maybe a ten year project, and uh, it it keeps me working. Uh, so that's kind of an artificial deadline, and and it's really a way for me to um, learn the kind of basic stuff that I skipped by having this kind of lopsided education from humble pie and um uh, stravinsky you know i didn't really have the middle ground right <laughs> you you had sent me this uh this you know pdf of uh new songs volume three uh and and it also uh at the the file itself is called marvelous melody songbook um is that is that a potential album, or is this what you're talking about? This sort of project of your sort of version of the Great American Songs. Um, well, it, it is a continuation of. I'm trying to write a certain batch. You know, I, I would like 60 is a good number. It's kind of a actually a bowl number, um, unless you throw in some clinkers there. But um, the that file I sent you, the working title of this third songbook is. Uh, uh, marvelous melodies of best forgotten Broadway, um, and it's part of another play I'm working on uh, about the marvelous theater in Philadelphia. Um, which, after it burned to the ground, the rehearsal piano was—it doesn't exist—but the uh, a theater called the Marvelous, and the piano is moved to the home of uh, the arranger and songwriter who was based out of the theater. After his death, his daughter discovers that the piano itself is full of old manuscripts of failed 
rotten plays that never made it from Philadelphia to New York, but to Broadway. However, uh, that some of the songs are good, and uh, the play itself is just set in a basement um, in Trenton, I think I put it, um, where these manuscripts were uncovered. Just, that, but basically, yeah, the PDF you got is current work. These are like full sheet music with notations and, you know, it's like with the chords, if you're playing guitar and with all the piano and the, and the notes for the tempo and you have like, I dream of Paris song from Marlene Dietrich, uh, Q equals 110 swing, but rubato, no drums, uh, 80 BPM one in three times. So this is, these are just like the notations that are, that are written on there. Is this stuff that you're sort of sitting down and, and I mean, this is kind of a dumb question, but you know, you're sitting down and writing this stuff out and working it all out on the piano as a, to, to get to that point. It's pretty well conceived. Well, it's kind of in a middle ground. It, you know, uh, um, you know, it used to be people would play, I uh, would have pianos in the parlor and they might have an early kind of record player. We're talking about, you know, the last century, but, um, it was a normal thing to play, and there were simple piano arrangements. These are not actually piano voicings; they're just melodies and guitar chords. But you can um, put that kind of paper in front of jazz players, and they extrapolate and can create an arrangement. So, I, I specifically am putting in kind of minimal performance indications. Uh, you know, a basic tempo, and if there's something important to say, I, I do. Uh, I usually write it out with piano chords in notation software, but I, I, these are what I call song sheets, where there'll, there'll be a melody in a pretty easy key, and then the chords. Um, and so there's a lot left open. Um, but it's it's more in, like, standardized... Uh, there's something called a real book. A lot of you know jazz players use the real book, which is a kind of fake book. That's a little more real. And so I'm writing essentially my own real book versions. In your mind, do you have, you know, an idea of what all these arrangements would sound like? Or is that still open to the actual, you know, uh, creating of the recordings or performances? I think the sheets are the, the song, actually. And, you know, I grew up with a, uh, the invention of the four-track analog tape recorder was incredible, in high school, um, I got one, and Mitch Easter had a basement full of guitar amps, and we got together. Uh, my friend Mitch, Mitch Easter in Winston Salem, North Carolina, and we had uh, uh, like a, uh, several years of exploring how to write on tape. And it's it's like not writing plays, but you're writing movies, right? Because you can, um, you know, in a movie, a car chase is a lot more effective than in a book. And in a recording, uh, having a sudden stop and a big drum fill with a lot of reverb um, sounds great, but it's not something you'd write on paper particularly. It's, it's just a different format. So I, I've kind of, here after many decades, I'm interested in writing the play, writing the song sheet rather than the recording. Um, in writing... You know, if you've got a movie and a car chase is looking going to look great for 10 minutes, you don't have to write uh, as compelling dialogue, perhaps. And um, I found the same with recording over many, many years. Um, you know, with guitars, detailed chords get in the way. You've got distortion and there's so much harmonic richness jumping out of the amp that you don't really, you know, writing in a... A dominant chord with a uh, sharp nine, it's just going to sound like garbage on electric guitar if it's loud. I find th th these, these song sheets are maybe, rather than using a movie, maybe they're more like sculpture. They, you know, there's something that in and of itself is complete. Um, do I hear how the record would be made? Sure. Um, and a lot of time that's with strings and woodwinds because those are things I uh, know. Um, but I think the record could be made anyway, you know. At this point, you know, obviously, a lot about music theory. 
Um, you write a lot about it in your book and, and just, you know, just in talking about it, seeing the music that you're writing, I mean, you're very aware of, you know, the, the chord changes and everything else you've, you've produced for years, you've recorded for years. Is, are there advantages to knowing more and also to knowing less? I think it's better to know more. Um, I mean, I, I have to say that when I started out, I, I knew certain things because we had in high school, uh, not only was music education still alive and well in our high school in, in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, we had music theory classes. So um, I learned on um, a chalkboard a lot more than my ear knew. And that continued for many years. And I mean, I think I was, you know, close to pitch deaf <laughs> all the way through the DBs, maybe. I don't know. Um, and and I, I think I've gotten better at this music racket over the years. And I, I, you know, if if I only knew now what I thought I knew then, then I would be pretty far out of the game. I am trying to uh, learn um, continuously. And I, you know, you're talking about the book, um, uh, A Spy in the House of Loud, you know, I, I, I know there are dumb things in that book that I didn't just didn't know quite what I was doing even then. I, talk, I mean, I think I was talking about uh, minor six chords and um, in a way that wasn't really accurate. I, I don't know. Were people called you on that? Did someone say, you know, your, your, your depiction of the minor six chord isn't exactly accurate? No, people skip over that end part. They don't, <laughs> they don't even pay any attention to it. I mean, I get You're called out. You're beating yourself up over this and nobody else, you know, was like, I, don't, you know, I, I believe him. No, I, I, I said the seeds were from Texas and that people rag me about that. Well, Ira Kaplan does. Um, there, there are plenty of bloopers in the book, but I haven't gotten called out on the... Uh, music notation wins so much. No, rock has this this sort of I don't know if it's a myth, but you know people like to talk about how you know Paul McCartney and John Lennon couldn't read music, and yet they wrote the greatest songs ever. And there's this sort of embrace of you know you could be totally intuitive and not know a lot to do great music. Is that is that something that just sort of drags down rock? And also, did you feel like sort of early on that? you know, maybe you were sort of bumping up against this sort of sense of, well, you know, we don't, you don't really need to be quite as sophisticated as you are. I, I'm not really that big on the three chord song, but I, I really like the one chord song, you know, um, it all should be based on what you're trying to express. Um, and, 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 and it should come from that, but also you don't want to be shackled by a lack of knowledge. A lot, a lot of people, write that first great song and then they write the next 10 that are really pretty damn good. And then they're kind of boxed in, you know, um, you see that in chess, you know, you can have a number of different openings, but if you don't at a certain point, uh, learn more about it, you're, you're just going to be boxed in. But, you know, like with all of this, if, if there was a clear schematic of how to achieve something great, everybody would be doing it. It seems to change all the time. And for, for me, um, I, you know, I just try to keep writing and keep, you know, working and hope that along the way, some things I do will surprise me. I think very, very, I think they're great. And then nothing will be really terrible. You know? So I, um, I, am, I do really like that last record that came out in the pandemic um, called... Uh, uh, a brand new shade of blue. Um, there's some things on that that I think really came out great, even though they're deceptively simple. There's a there's a song that's somewhat uh, Bacharach styled, although it was a uh, really an answer record to the Jimmy Webb Phoenix record. It's called "I Don't Think of You," and I, I'm really pleased with that that song and the title song. I like a lot. I don't think of you. As I'm pouring out my coffee I don't think of you When I'm running for the bus There are a lot of people who obviously know you through the DBs, Stands for Decibels, Repercussion albums in the early 80s, a band that you'd formed with uh, Gene Holder and um, Will Rigby and then Peter Holsapel joined. And so you had sort of the two songwriters and you had those first two albums in which the two of you were trading off songs. And there are a lot of people who 
love those records and it was 40 years ago. How much of your sort of musical identity do you feel like is wrapped up in that work and how much do you want it to be? I mean, that was not a particularly good songwriting time for me. Um, it was a great time to be alive, but, um, you know, gosh, I was thinking this morning, there's a song on that first record called I'm in love and it is just so over arranged, but you know, there's something good there. And then I realized, you know, if I took out that minor three chord right before the end, it suddenly was a pretty good song, but you know, <laughs> at the time I didn't really know that. Um, I, I, you know, Peter was writing great stuff at, at that time. And people say that his songs were simpler than mine, but they weren't. Um, harmonically, they were really cool. Uh, you know, something like that ballad, Nothing Is Wrong. Just the slight major minor shifts in it. And uh, I mean, uh, there was very little distance between uh, what he was trying to express and how he did it. And so I really admire Peter's stuff there. I actually think that my songwriting was better a couple of years before that with the sneakers record. Um, again, pretty complicated at times, but, and then I think I kind of got back into a better place. Um, once I started making the records for A&M, but I'm glad people like the DB's records. And I, I think I did contribute, um, uh, you know, aggressively to how crazy they sound. Um, which is good, you know. More so on stands for decibels than repercussion from the way you describe it, at least, that that was, that repercussion did not, was a little more streamlined. You'd, you'd brought in Scott Litt. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, he was the producer. I, I was a lot of the producer on stands for decibels. Um, whatever the credit is, I think that people would probably agree with that. Um, and uh, you know, Scott was clearly the producer, even more so than I think we realized he would be on um, repercussion. Um, I interviewed Scott and I remember he said at the time, you know, he like he wanted to work at Power Station because he just felt like, you know, get me on a winning team and I'll show you what I can do. And he was a, a young guy in New York. He was our age. Uh, ready to take over the world. And he really gave us everything he had. So, um, you know, I've, I've got to love him for that. Um, I think we were slightly shocked. I was slightly shocked, you know, um, because I'd, I'd been pretty bossy um, in the studio before that. But, um, you know, Scott and I continued to be friends and still are. And um, I've just learned a, a ton from him. Yeah, you'd written uh, about that album, his work on the album, Scott Litz. Uh, his approach differed from mine quite a bit. It was more visceral and less romantic and mopey and wide-angle orchestral. You know, Scott would go dance. I mean, he he would, he, he, he was watching Chic at um, Power Station, you know, so all of a sudden, finding a groove became a real thing. And I, you know, I, I think I was oblivious to that. I'm not really much of a good dancer. <laughs> So was he was he putting more kind of emphasis on the rhythms and stuff on that album or and specifically your songs or just in general? Like um, we were we were happy there, I mean, which it's is part of what a producer does. And, and it's definitely part of what he did. And I don't think that it was something that um, uh, I was so great at. Like, how would that album have sounded if you were sort of in charge of it? Like, what would you do differently if you could sort of go back and do like the Chris Damey remix on Repercussion? Recorded in America? <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe record it down south. I mean, I, I um, you know, there, there was, uh, I, I don't have a good answer for that. But there was something about it that felt too slick or upfront. And, and, and it felt like, from the way you describe it and the fact that you left the band after that, that, that it wasn't sort of expressing where you were musically anymore. Oh, I didn't leave the band because of repercussion, but what happened with repercussion is it was just made more obvious that, you know, we're dealing with uh, vinyl and, you know, you can barely get to 20 minutes on vinyl before it sounds like crap. So if you've got two songwriters and once the songs get past the, uh, essential two and a half minute length and hit four, you know, you're talking about four or five songs aside 
right. people who are writing a lot of songs. Um, Peter and I were starting to get a backlog and we were really hooked on hearing our songs recorded. Recorded, It was great. And also on releasing them. And there was just no way forward. We were going to have, you know, 40 songs by the next record that we couldn't cut. That, that was the problem. I, I would really blame. I think if the CD had existed, uh, we would be making these really too long CDs and the band would still be together. I mean, I think that's, that a, that's this, a smart ass answer, I guess. No, we no, hated each other. Come on. <laughs> no, that's a smart answer. You go, you go back to this probably goes back to the Beatles, too. And then, you know, the Stones to some extent. But there's but more the Beatles, the the, the the sort of the notion of the two songwriters and sort of taking turns. And, you know, there are various bands that have that that template. So so they're sort of embraced when the two of them work together. You've like, oh, it's like the sort of magic where you got the John song and then the Paul song and they're bouncing off each other. And, you know, with you guys, it was the Chris song and the Peter song. Do you feel like your two styles of songwriting melded in that way that it made it sort of greater than the sum? Or do you feel like it really was you, you doing your thing, him doing his thing? And so it wasn't really combined you know, something that was necessary to continue as that unit. Well, I, th- I think that might be better for other people to think about. Also, the fact that these records are no longer available um, makes it kind of esoteric to talk about it in great detail. Uh, they've been taken down by Universal. Um, really? But, yeah. I mean, as far as streaming, digital music, whatever, um, yeah, they're gone. However, if Peter brought in a, a really pop song like Judy, I, I would or uh, Big Brown Eyes, I would think, okay, I want to, we should keep it sweet and sour or we should balance this out. And I, I, I think there were some songs I had that were as romantic and diatonic as Peter's songs during that time that I didn't want to have on the record because I wanted to have, say, that first record, Cycles Per Second, um, you know, things to kind of balance out that equation make the record more varied i think when i started making records on my own there were some songs that were perhaps more similar to what peter was writing and maybe carolee i don't know and then when we started working together as a duo for the mavericks record you could still tell who was writing but i don't think it was as extreme the differences and you'd gotten back together with uh peter to work on mavericks and then and then you have our back pages which came out uh, last year which is really a lovely record you know that we did peter and i did a record called um here and now for bar none that um i i i think is quite a nice record i, I mean there are definitely songs uh that i'm very proud of on that do you do you feel like in that in that format you're you're more compatible than in a band format or is it just you know just a different way to do stuff i think this is a little bit of an iceberg conversation um i mean i've known peter all my life and he's great everybody you know it's obvious that peter holzapple is great um as are uh gene holder and will rigby but you know we're high school friends and we keep doing different things together but it's not um i i do a lot of different things I, i i don't really see my musical activity as being spotlit only by what i do with peter when i when i look at it that doesn't seem like an honest portrayal of it. Yeah, I was just following the thread of because you had your early BB's records, which obviously people have related to. You came back, you had Falling Off the Sky in 2012, which uh, I saw you guys play at the House of Blues in Chicago, and it was exciting because I hadn't seen the four of you yeah. together. And then you've had these different configurations. Then obviously you've had this whole other career of many, many more songs that you've recorded on and written for solo albums you've done production work and everything else like that so it's just sort of it it's interesting to me sort of the kind of going into these different kind of contexts like it's not quite neil young with and without crazy horse but there's sort of the there, there's that association that people have with you with that band and then there's everything else that you do well i mean from my point of view um i i think of uh, a business card that peter Holzapple had um that had a slogan on it, like, I'll make you sound more like you. You know, Peter is great in the studio. Uh, he plays a lot of instruments. He's a, just a good musician. Uh, he's got a great ear. And uh, it, it is also, there is a desire to impress him, you know, to bring 
songs I'm proud of to, for him to work. I don't ask him to work on crap, you know? I mean, I try not to write crap, but I. it's nice to see a smile come on Peter's face. So, you know, that's been a long-term good relationship, um, and I'm grateful for it. Like, are you more comfortable contributing to someone else's songs or having someone contribute to your songs? As a producer, which is something I did quite a bit um, in the late 80s, 90s, and the zeros, um, you know, you get a perspective. You generally, there's something you love about the music or you wouldn't be doing it. And then you hit a point where, hmm, I don't love that. Why is that? Um, and then you can maybe say, you know what? you got to cut that entire bridge in half. We should modulate here, blah, blah, blah. You can use your love for what they're doing to bring solutions that they may not have thought of. And then when that happens, that energizes a project. I don't usually write, co-write with people. I have a little bit on their own on when I'm producing, but sometimes that outside the box um, thinking uh, is the kind of writing I do. I, I try to not be the guy who put in the minor seventh chord in the middle of a song that didn't need the damn chord. Um, so that that's the kind of co-writing I, I've done with other people. As far as co- people helping me with my songs... Um, generally it'll be, uh, lyrically, Will Rigby might say, that's terrible (laughs) and I'll, I'll change it, you know, or that's a cliche. I'm often blind to cliche because sometimes they're cliches because they're true. Um, and I, 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 you know, I've put a lot less work into learning about how words work together than I have about how notes work together, um. I mean, I, you know, I co-wrote a song with Dan Wilson that we've never actually demoed that I think is a good song. Uh, Dan's a uh, Los Angeles-based songwriter who's very talented. Um, but generally, I, ha- I haven't co-written. I'm thinking also just about the arrangements. Like when you come into a studio and you have musicians lined up, whether it's a band that's already established, like the DBs, or it's just, you know, these are the guys you're working with on this record are you like you play this part you play this part this is what the bass part sounds like or do you say okay here's the song flesh it out let's hear what happens well i think you always try to do as little as possible you try to um figure out what's wrong with the picture and um do the minimum on the other hand i i have been very interested in arranging you know if you look back at when records were made on the four track or the eight track they would capture the performance hopefully the vocal but you get the vocal and the performance, and then, um, and I'm talking about early rock and roll things or uh, whatever, then or Phil Spector, but then you might do an orchestration that just adds that 15%, and maybe it is on, you know, odious violins or something, but you'd figure out uh, what was needed. Now, I've become really not bad at writing string arrangements, these days and pretty good at, at wind and other instrument arrangements. Um, and I'm fascinated by the, of, you know, even like Nelson Riddle, um, how it would complete the performance. Um, the best records often have the most minimal things. And that's what's one thing that's great about current pop radio. Um, is that you'll have these records that just have a ukulele, you know, or have very minimal things, and they sound fantastic. Um, that's another thing I, I learned from Scott Litt, and I have to keep telling myself. Can you think of, you know, a song you did that, you know, in the studio, based because other people did something or other, it sort of transformed the song for you, and you're like, oh, I hadn't, I didn't think it was going to sound like this until this person did that. Of my own songs. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Um, you know, there are instrumentalists who have come in and really blown my mind, but often maybe soloing. Um, I mean, there's a guy named Will Campbell here um, who plays alto sax, uh, although he sounds like a tenor half the time. And um, 
he was a, a lead player with Harry Connick for a while and is like a Charlie Parker specialist. And every time he comes in and plays for me, um, you know, it's beyond, I, I don't know how he does it. Um, and, and, you know, oceans split. Um, but in terms of arranging, I, you know, I, I, unfortunately I, I, I get the, my songs in my head and, um, I, I'm not sure how transformed they get. You have a pretty good idea of what you want them to sound like. I mean, you have, they're very well fully formed by the time you hit the studio. Well, you know, I mean, the sculpture's chipping away at the stone. Does he know that there's the figure in there exactly? But I mean, you, as you, as you go along, you figure out, um, what's right and what's wrong. So yeah, I, I don't know. Then again, the Clint Eastwood thing, um, Mr. Uh, Eastwood, maybe we do one more take. I want to talk about your motivation. And Clint says, are we in focus? And the director says, yeah, but I think it could be this way. And Clint says, was it in focus? Let's move on. You know, often you get the tempo right, you get the key right. The song is going to magnetically leap into life and then you don't have to do a whole lot. Um, So again, with these song sheets, I mean, I'm trying to get the key right, the tempo right, the form right and hope that that exoskeleton will make the song somewhat impervious to failing. (laughs) Harold Ramis had said to me years ago, he said, when you're making a movie, there are actually three movies. There's a movie you think you're going to make the movie you think you're making and the movie it turns out that you made. And I would guess to some extent that would apply to songwriting as well. Does it? Yeah, I mean, those the damn Marvel movies, you know, they're making the movie they thought they were making, and it's just like, and that's happening with records too, I think. Yeah, with Groundhog Day is better do, than but, the Marvel movies, so. Yeah, Groundhog Day I, is my life, I'll tell you. But um, so I, I think if you're talking about record making, you're, there's a uh, balance between uh, performance and assembly. Um, sometimes records are assembled twig by twig. And or and that's a bad metaphor, but are, are assembled and uh, to an arrangement against a grid, uh, against a metronome. Sometimes they're performed, and uh, then you take that performance, which might not even be to a click track, hopefully, and might be a one of a kind thing. Um, and then you do the very minimum of assemblage to make that happen. But there are great things that happen on both ends of the spectrum of the spectrum. Um, you know, there was a time when, uh, reviewers were talking about symphonic performances and all this kind of goopily gook, um, you know, using the word passion over and over again. And then they asked Stravinsky to, um, do a review of one of his pieces and he turned in the review and it was like bar 53, the bassoon was a half step low. You know, it was, it was just like, you know, achieve the score and you have the music. Um, it's a lot to think about, isn't it? Right. You had, by the way, uh, an observation that, the, and, and I think you even mentioned that you don't think anyone had made this observation, but you talk about how one of the shifts from analog to digital is that the studios smell different. Uh, you know, M- Mitch Easter said that, actually. Pro engineers, you could use your nose to tell whether the tape is spinning 3M, Scotch, Ampex, or Agva. Yeah, it's not hard. Um, I mean, I, I, I get confused between time and cumin, or but I can tell Agva. How much did the you know shift from analog to digital affect how you record, make music? It was just shifting all the time, so it was just like one more shift, and it was a gradual thing for me. I mean, um, you know, from mono cassette recorders to TAC analog reel-to-reel four-track was a big shift um, to sixteen-track. Uh, and then 24 was a pretty big shift. And then we were running um, time code on analog to run MIDI equipment um, against a clock uh, off SMPTE, what was called SMPTE code. That was a shift. All of a sudden you had the machines and the analog together. And it gradually the audio shifted to digital. So, th- you know, there was some time along the way for all these things. Um, I got into Pro Tools pretty early, like 1973. I th- think it was still called, it might have been called Sound Tools then. And um, I find it really wonderful to be in a room with a bunch of musicians and know that 
you know, somebody has an idea, and if it's analog, it, it would be, okay, guys, come back in 45 minutes, and I'll have made a copy of the two-inch, and I'll have made those edits, and we can see if the idea is any good. Uh, but in Pro Tools, while we're talking about it, um, I can kind of keep some bladder going and move my fingers around, and we hear the idea right then. Um, because a lot of what happens in recording studios is you're in there too long, long days, long uh, weeks. And it's great that Pro Tools makes things faster. It, um, it's horribly misused, but, you know, all these technologies were horribly misused. I mean, 16-track or 24-track, they, they put all these mics on the drums, and then all of a sudden everything, there were all these phase problems, and, you know, multi-track sounded crappier for a long time, and then you figure it out. And it's the same thing with uh, any kind of technology. Um, you stagger under the weight of the possibilities, and then you figure it out, and um, people do great things with it. Um, I, I remember reading... Uh, Bob Clearmountain was at Power Station uh, as a, when he started out. Well, maybe Hip Factory, but then Power Station in New York, and he's a very well-regarded mixer who... Uh, took a firm stand on the process really early on. And I remember him saying how excited he was when the DAT tape came out because all of a sudden the playback was like what he had heard when it went down. You know, and most people think like digital is the devil and, you know, DATs were a horrible interim step in the process. But here we have Bob Clearmountain saying, this is the best thing ever. <laughs> right. And there's this fine line between sort of tweaking stuff to make it, you know, to fix things that are mistakes and, you know, making something totally robotic with auto-tune because you just don't want to, because they, like you could lose a sense of performance if you do too much tweaking. But on the other hand, like little adjustments, I, I assume it's helpful to be able to sort of punch in stuff and whatever else. It was interesting working on these uh, concerts of the Big Star Third record. Um, because when I recorded with Alex Chilton... Uh, you know, he would say, well, if there are mistakes, that's great. Or he, he would not fix things that he could have. He was, you know, he was a skilled musician. I mean, he was a good, good, Alex was a good musician. And, uh, but he didn't want to fix things often. And, um, you know, you go through the, the multi-tracks for the Big Star Third record. And sometimes people are on the wrong chord or it's just, they've gotten the bass player drunk and it, um, was genuinely not only kind of out there in the way that record was released, but the ingredients of it were also pretty out there. And um, it, it made me think of working with Alex, and he was doing these background parts, and uh, Frank Kowalski, the keyboard player, and I looked at each other and thought, good grief, that's insane. And Fran looked at me and said, uh, you know, you can't tell a painter how to paint. And a, a lot of this gridded stuff is really telling the painters how to paint, that everything has to be on, you know, the grid. Um, you know, live, you have, you know, we used to go see an RBQ a lot, and it was like the four of them were holding a trampoline and bouncing the beat up and down. It wouldn't, they weren't on, you know, they weren't all hitting the downbeat at the same time. Uh, and that blur was very uh, attractive. And the other thing that does really get my... Crawl, although I do it, I, I do record often to strict tempo all the way through, but um, if you're familiar with classical music, the particularly the Romantic era, but all, all eras, there are abrupt tempo changes that fit the intention. Um, sometimes things just speed up as, as notated, or slow down. Sometimes all of a sudden, uh, there's a meter change, or it changes abruptly. And when you've started the process against strict tempo... Um, you 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 lose that um you know when when the strict tempo really took over on radio choruses got pretty weird in the 90s because normally you'd get faster on a chorus and now all of a sudden you can only get louder <laughs> you know you can only put on 10 more guitars um because you couldn't speed up because you hadn't written that into the uh tempo map to begin with. 
by the way, I was going to say that to going back to Alex Chilton, um, the, the, the sort of working relationship with him, I, I found fascinating and really enjoyed reading it in part. And you note this in the book that that even though you, you sort of become aware, oh, he was in dark places at various points of this, that he really was sort of being creative and, and exploring stuff with you. And it's it's a nice picture of that. Um, and there's also a great scene where he brings in he he's telling you about Chris Bell's uh, I am the cosmos and basically says it's the most bell like you know first two lines ever and uh he's playing it for you and eventually Chris Bell you call up Chris Bell and he he plays it over the phone like holds the phone up to the speaker and you decide to release that as a single which is like one of the great singles in my mind um but it's it's just this just it's just like a you know just a nice story about you know, how supportive and creative they were being as opposed to that sense of, oh, this was the dark period. It it, it seems like Alex Chilton, there, there was definitely uh, the blind man and the elephant and he was the elephant. You know, a lot of people were grabbing the tail or grabbing the trunk or what, you know, and, uh, and who am I to say that I knew the guy? Um, it was a, a brief, intense time in New York, but... Um, he was, you know, he was great. I mean, my experience with him, um, you know, I mean, we were sitting around listening to Colin Blundstone records that were, had these orchestrations by Rod Argent and trying to figure out what was going on. Um, you know, uh, going to see Charles, Charles Mingus. Um, I mean, it was, a, it was a musical time. I wasn't hanging out at the right clubs at the right time to know about the darkness. But um, I, I think he... He was, you know, he, Alex. I don't think was that fascinated with being a rock star. He had kind of been there, done that early on, um, and uh, you know, he was kind of a private guy. You playing with Chilton all that time, and also, you know, knowing his music. How much did that influence what you were doing? By the time I started playing with Alex, I was actually quite taken with that band, Television. Um, I I had gotten the Big Star Records when they came out because they were. Uh, they had hit singles in Winston-Salem. And I thought, you know, this is like the grassroots. They're a hit band, but they're better. You know, I didn't really, um, I didn't know it was a secret handshake band because it was actually popular in Winston. I mean, I've, I've been, I've, I've tried to pry back the curtains on some parts of music as best I can in my life. Um, but it's, it's hard to get around that unquestioning, effect that art can have and it's hard to even understand it um when uh, you know a a painting or um a a book or a song speak your language and all of it or you know you see yourself in that and there was something about that big star record that um was just went straight to my heart i mean and, you know, it wasn't the secret handshake part because, you know, that song 13 seems to have an emotive power. Um, you know, I mean, it's pretty like the Samuel Barber adagio for strings um, makes me cry every time. I don't know why. Um, and it makes a lot of people feel that way. So we, we try to figure out the words, the chords to songs that affect us. But... Um, it's still a mystery. And, you know, I'm not that unhappy that it's a mystery. Do you like going back to those, uh, to the Big Stars third shows and kind of recreating that? And, and what do you get out of doing that? Uh, I think we're done with that. I, it was like a dare, really. Um, I don't think we'll do more. Um, Elliot Smith was re- really a marvel at starting melodies in unexpected places. And the music was difficult and charming. And um, the local club Cat's Cradle did an Elliot Smith concert, and then I was talking to the owner uh, Frank Heath and said, "Well, let's let's evolve. Let, what can we go from here?" And I said, "Well, let's do the Big Star Third record," and we laughed. And then, like two years later, he called me back and said, uh, "Let's do the Big Star Third record." So it was really down to him. And then I asked Jody what he thought, and Jody said, "Well, I'll come play," you know, and it got really exciting. But what I loved about those concerts uh there were two things really the camaraderie um you know some of that music is not the most cheerful but um scholar Godaz, brett harris uh charles cleaver Django haskins mike mills 
um, Pat Sansone, all these great folks really kind of bonded on getting together and playing it. And then the other thing that I took from it um, selfishly was uh, I got to hire good string players, you know, Kronos Quartet, um, uh, folks from 8th Blackbird, um, Flux Quartet, uh, and they're sitting there anyway, so I got to write for them for other songs uh, and expand the whole thing. And in fact, last December, we did a concert without Jody playing drums at all, just the chamber music side of things. And for me, having that little uh, laboratory environment of waking up in the hotel room, writing something out and taking it to the Big Star Third rehearsal and putting it in front of the players and you hear it. Uh, I, I learned so much doing that. Um, and, uh, you know, so it was an incredible boon. And it all came from just the, Frank Heath, who runs Cat's Cradle, saying, uh, we can do it, you know? Do you think that's, of those three Big Star albums, is that the one? Or is like each one just its own masterpiece I, you know I, I think more of those as a collection of recordings and, and their particular songs um i mean i experienced them as separate records i mean i was really fond of radio city the uh i had the third album on a cassette in a different order and i thought that it sounded kind of peculiar because it was on a cassette it actually that wasn't that wasn't the full story there um yeah but i mean i like the what what happened when alex came up to new york we played the songs from third regularly. So I knew them as songs, more like these song sheets of mine. We played Holocaust, you know, we played Kangaroo. Um, we pl played Nighttime and the words would change and the tempos would change and the improvisations would change. And, you know, maybe it wasn't always great, but sometimes it was. Um, and so it's hard for me to separate those live experiences from the recording of the third record. And those songs w had more of a place in what he was doing afterward than maybe the earlier stuff that he was connecting to those more still. Now, I mean, for the third record for Alex's part, uh, I think the velvet underground had a lot to do with that record. Um, you know, I think he, I always thought of the velvet underground third record and the big stars third record as being kind of cousins in a way. I, I, that's just my musicologist sense. Alex never said that. Um, but he definitely was a, a Lou Reed fan at that point and his uh, girlfriend Lisa was as well um, so I think that had some influence on that Big Star Third record What what music do you listen to the most now? Well, what I'm working on I, I listen to a lot um, but that doesn't help you I mean I don't have anything clever to tell you I, I mean Chet Baker doesn't have to be clever Chet Baker, Chet Baker sings I've been playing a lot um when I want to go to see a Marvel movie, so to speak, I go to see the North Carolina Symphony, and they played the uh, Gershwin Piano Concerto a couple of weeks ago. Um, and, and live, I mean, I, I just ate it up. That was fantastic. You know, and it was really charming that he orchestrated it himself. Um, and I, I really kind of appreciated, I mean, he didn't, you know, uh, the Paul Whitman arranger actually did uh, Rhapsody in Blue, I believe. And, you know, Gershwin was hungry for self-improvement and Ravel and Nadia Bollinger turned him down, but he persevered and, you know, he went away to a retreat and wrote the orchestration for uh, the piano concerto. So when I, when I hear it, I think about that and I think about the, the growth he went through and, uh, you know, it actually makes me get a little choked up. It's fantastic. I mean, I, 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 I always go back to the uh, Charles Ives orchestral works um, that's what I, you know, I grew up on. Um, do you listen to CDs at home, uh, vinyl, earbuds? Um, no, I, I love Spotify. <laughs> people that that's the end of it for most people probably. Yeah. For me, Spotify is a great tool. Um, I, I, I have a, a really hi-fi control room. The, the Sonics are great and I listen to stuff in full, uh, you know, the full spectrum of sound pretty much. So I don't mind if I'm in the house and it sounds kind of crappy, if I can hear the vocal. And are you, are you more um, espresso or brewed coffee? 
Well, uh, it's the same thing as Spotify. We have one of those Keurigs. Is Fireworks the one where you have the, you're sipping the espresso on the cover? Boy, have I gotten ragged for that little shot. I, I didn't think anything of it. Yeah, that was Arabic. That was an Arabic restaurant, I think. It looks good. Well, thank you. I This was, this was a treat for me. I hope it wasn't too torturous for you. Uh, I just really enjoy talking about songwriting and and also just where you're coming from with this stuff because i've listened to your music over many years and enjoy listening to more of it and uh and also just having read the book i just have that much more of an insight into where it's coming from so so thanks so much well you're, you're welcome i do think a lot about songwriting and i, I think it is a, a a great adventure i would recommend it but um if you're a songwriter and you get value out of it I, I do think you owe it to yourself to keep peeling back the layers. A lot of people get to the point where they know uh, like one, four, five chords, and then they learn like a six minor chord, and then then they maybe learn a two minor chord. Um, then the the next level up is like a four minor, which is a very exciting thing, but it's a cliche. Maybe a five minor, you learn how to use a three chord, but you can see this stair step progression in songwriters and and there are a lot of ways to go from that once you learn the how the basic chords work um but i'm not seeing that a lot of people are actually going very far up the stairs and and i think that's a mistake um you you can do better financially if you've got your social media cranked but um spiritually music is a rewarding adventure and it's much more rewarding if you keep going deeper. Yeah. Do you, when you listen to pop music, by the way, like you'll hear if you if you actually happen to hear sort of hits now, do they strike you as sort of speaking the same language that you were learning, or is it does it sound like a foreign language at this point? Well, I mean, the girl groups were going uh, one six four five pretty much, uh, and nowadays it's whatever six four one five. I mean, there's a Wikipedia page that has the uh, based on the four chord song, and it's got the last couple of decades of all the hits that use just that progression over and over again. And it's a kind of like bedroom auto hypnosis people go through with the same four chords and then the confessional lyrics. Um, but I've written those songs too, that exact progression just to see if I could... I wrote a song called uh, I Am Yours that I'm quite proud of that is almost only those four chords in that order. But, you know, it's a dead end. It has been done now. Um, and I, I am hearing people break out of it. On And, you know, Taylor Swift has done those, uh, particularly working with the Mad Max or whatever, but um, I really was very charmed by Taylor Swift early on because she played uh, New Year's Eve where the ball was about to drop. You know, it's quite a public forum. And it's like 20 minutes before the ball. And she goes in and she plays a new song she's just written uh, with her band. It's not a great song. And they've just worked it up. And I just thought, damn, that that woman is actually a real songwriter. Because that's exactly what you should do. You shouldn't be you shouldn't play it safe right yeah and, and and courses kind of go in and out of style like now all the songs don't have them or sometimes they do the great have american them. songbook thing it's, it was very interesting and it was the same that's why the beatles songs were really great american songbook they have an a part and a b part they don't really have the plateau of a, a verse and then the huge mountaintop of a chorus um i mean i guess maybe let it be it was a little like that but generally they would there, it's an A part and a B part, and and that is what um, the Great American Songbook writing is primarily about. Right. Yeah. The Beatles. It's interesting because yeah, you're like yesterday, no chorus. Hey Jude, no chorus. Let it be. Yes, chorus. So they they go back and forth, but but mostly it's a it's a B. It was really only later the sing along chorus came into being. You know, anything that moves you is fine with me. That's it for episode 30 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Chris Stamey for his generous insights and excellent music. You'll learn much more and enjoy doing so if you read A Spy in the House of Loud, The New York Songs and Stories 
available from University of Texas Press and wherever good books are sold. You also should check out his most recent albums, New Songs for the 20th Century and A Brand New Shade of Blue, both from Omnivore Recordings. His back catalog is worth seeking out as well. You also can book a session with him at his studio, Modern Recording, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Go to chrisdamey.com for more information. Thanks, as always, to web developer Marty Rosenbaum and to Lou Carlozo, who recorded the Carol Pop theme. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, whose work is Die No Might. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O, and visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com. For posts about music, movies, food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Thanks. Thanks.